0: Hello and welcome to Contain This. Today, I'm joined by Professor Brett Sutton, the Chief Health Officer of Victoria. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, not many Australians could tell you who the Chief Health Officers were. In the last two years, that has changed. Brett Sutton became one of the most recognisable figures in Australian public health, not least because as Victoria was the first state in Australia to manage a significant COVID wave in 2020, We saw him daily, front up to the media, to the public to explain the public health actions of government and the rationale for them. Professor Sutton is responsible for advising Victorian government on the public health response to the pandemic, including how to adapt and align to reach marginalised populations and diverse groups within Victoria. In today's episode, we speak to Professor Sutton about what he has learnt over the last two years and what governments can do better, not just to prepare for a future pandemic, but to take as lessons for broader public health policies. Brett, can you describe some of the lessons since about March 2020 that you have learned or the Victorian government has learned about working with marginalised populations and diverse subgroups in Victorian community?
1: I could speak for hours on this but there's been there's been a lot learned. Look, I think the first the first thing to note is that our most at-risk populations require some significant efforts and significant understanding. One that you can't do that overnight. So you need to do the the planning, the preparation, build the relationships, embed the networks if you like and embed those ongoing relationships that build trust and understanding over years and it's really useful to have that in place we didn't have that to the extent that we wanted it in March 2020 that that's for sure we worked really really hard to try and establish that through various channels and the other lesson uh, in particular is that there are a thousand channels and there are a thousand different communities within a community that you shouldn't make any assumptions about the usual suspects if you like in terms of trusted figures or in terms of those points of liaison with those communities. Government tends to have a rather conservative default. You go to the elders in the community or those who've been put forward as representatives. They are a very, very useful resource. They are very well connected. They also understand government and they have the connections to government. They are not always um, the individuals who will reach into those most at-risk populations or the populations that you think are the real priority populations that you want to reach. So you have to be open-minded, flexible, iterative and agile in understanding who those people need to be and reach into those communities with a thousand different messages and a thousand different channels that work. And that is that needs to start as a listening project. It doesn't sit very easily when you're in the middle of a crisis and you're trying to move things really rapidly and you have to move things really rapidly, but you need the mechanisms to understand what the gaps are, what the failures have been, what the Historical concerns are and what the potential enablers uh, are in that engagement process, and you know a lot of a lot of the lessons are not new lessons. They've probably been prosecuted by those communities many many times over 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 decades. Which is you know understand us, understand our diversity, understand our individual histories of mistrust in government, of how we've been. Treated in our country of origin uh, on our arrival in Australia as first, second, third generation groups. So I think th- those are pretty tough lessons, and there's a lot of complexity there, but really, really useful to then establish those networks to build trust and to really understand what those major concerns are that helps you to say, well, what do we need to do here in terms of having people come forward for testing or to? engage with government services where we're trying to offer support to isolate appropriately to quarantine to get vaccinated and they'll they'll each have their own barriers and enablers and complexities to them. And you you've got to sit with that because there's there's tough lessons there and some of it you can address and some of it you know is probably a decades-long project. But there are also lessons for the next pandemic and there are also lessons for all of those other crises that tend to affect very similar populations disproportionately, whether it be environmental health challenges or other communicable diseases that aren't pandemics or all of those other social determinants of health really at play um, in, in many of those communities.
0: It did feel like, I've said this before on this podcast, that for the first few months, everywhere around the world, we were talking about a pathogen and not people. Um, and we have learned that the hard way in so many settings in terms of just practical differences in what the victorian government did in learning these lessons did you say for example have a community engagement team that was one person to begin with that became 100 when you say we how did that actually look practically inside the response
1: yeah there were there were lots of mini evolutions and and big scale ups you know we were we were very limited in the resources that we had for something of that scale and complexity to begin with. And so we knew we needed we need to beef up the team really substantially. But it was it was absolutely the case of it's not just comms out, it's not just the information out, and it's certainly not just a, a push. And again, the you know the usual modes of government tend to be a little bit overly pamphlet driven, English language statewide campaign level elements where it's all of the languages, pictographs, face-to-face engagement, talking it through, and so we we developed a number of bicultural workers, and the, and the other issue is you need to give up some of that control. Of course, there's a need for a statewide campaign level comms because you've got to reach 7 million people, but if you're really going to impact where you need to put the most effort in... You can't just be a, a passive uh, display or a one-way communication channel. You've got to go back and forth and you've got to have those iterative engagements over days and weeks and months. And so the decentralisation and devolution of some of that engagement was a really important thing as well. So we did stand up local public health units, which you know have really been a sea change in the Victorian public health kind of infrastructure. It's gone through different iterations over the years, but um, to have local public health units with, you know, dozens of staff, public health medical expertise, but broader expertise in contact tracing and in community engagement were really critical. So, bicultural workers are are an embedded workforce element in those local public health units, and they have done the real hard yards in speaking to those communities. And again, it's not something you stand up overnight, and it's not something that you can easily do with. You know, every culture and language under the sun represented in a city like Melbourne, but it, it's gone a long way to make a difference in terms of the, the way that we work with those communities. And I think there is trust building over time. And we've seen the response change in terms of you know, seeing better engagement and seeing the outcomes of that better engagement, which which is, you know, the pillars of the public health response in terms of good isolation and good quarantine and huge responses to vaccine uptake. But, with an understanding of what we needed to address in that space, because you know I live in a world where my sources of information are pretty mainstream and English language. Many, many people uh, have social media as their primary information flow or their extended family, and many of those individuals have their country of origin mainstream news and then fringe news as as their you know preferred sources of information that are either completely wrong or actual disinformation, Uh, and there are many people who are trying to also reach into these communities with misinformation in order to affect behaviours. So we've got to play in that space and be pretty robust about it.
0: So you mentioned vaccine uptake. And I wonder how you are, Victoria's doing well in the vaccine coverage as at today, we're talking in October, um, How whether the groundwork with some of these communities has made it easier for vaccine uptake and really as well how Victoria tracks the coverage by subgroup. How do you know that you're doing well in some of these populations in terms of the COVID vaccine?
1: Yeah, certainly uptake's. Going great guns now. So eighty-seven percent first dose coverage statewide, and and some you know highly multicultural local government areas with with higher uh, first dose coverage and with bookings that tell us that they're going to get to ninety-five percent first dose coverage and very likely above ninety percent fully vaccinated. So I think the engagement that's occurred has has made a difference because it's addressed the misinformation. You know, vaccine hesitancy is a term that's bandied around a lot, but often it really is just about uh, finding a trusted source to talk through your issues and then going through a rather systematic but relatively simple process of debunking the myths, addressing uh, the legitimate questions that everyone should have about something that's Going into their body, especially as an injection, and especially with the with the misinformation that's probably sat with them for some months before they've had an opportunity to talk that through. So I think that addresses the vast majority of people who who've waited, I think, rather than opposed vaccination, and it's gotten them over the line. In terms of that really lo- real-time and local level information, we've we've just done analysis that's uh come from really embedding the data sharing with the Australian Immunisation Register. That's a little bit delayed, uh, but we've also got our CVMS system, as we call it, which captures the real-time vaccination information for people who are stepping up for their first and second doses, and that gives us information on uh, occupation and and postcode. So, uh, you know, it's down to statistical area one levels, which can really tell us, you know, almost block by block how we're doing. It's not always it's not always accurate because we've had significant population shifts with international students no longer arriving, but people moving about by virtue of the pandemic that's changed the demographics of some small suburban populations. Um, but it's been pretty insightful in lots of other uh, ways, and we just respond to that uh, in terms of where we need to focus our attention um, and get down to that granular level. So we've gone from the state again statewide campaign enabling a vaccine provision to the pop-up sites and now the, the mini pops as we're calling them so the um the pop-up sites that are almost at the end of the street in the local cafe in the in the school in the shopping center in the gyms where you might only capture 50 100 people for the day uh, but those are people who would otherwise not uh, meet vaccines uh, through any other mechanism so it makes a big difference
0: in terms of the next you know i I want to say just one year, but if we're being practical one to two to three to four years, Victoria's come a long way. You've got now high first-dose vax coverage. From a system perspective, what are your priorities for living in a, I'm going to call it a COVID era for the next two to three, four years?
1: I mean, I, I want us to embed and sustain the public health capacity and capability into the longer term. You know, that's a foundational lesson, I think, for all of us, that you can't overinvest in public health. Um, As bang for buck goes, as return on investment goes, doesn't matter if it's a pandemic or uh, addressing sedentary behaviour or overweight and obesity or smoking or gambling or drinking, um, you always get a better return uh, on investment for the health and wellbeing outcomes. So let's embed that for all of the reasons um, in responding to the pandemic but for everything else that public health does. But I think the the core elements that are in those local public health units and us in public health centrally are that we can use that engagement as a platform for everything else that we want to achieve. That's the ongoing response, which means sustained behaviour change for those public health interventions that we think are going to be needed in the longer term, which, you know, maybe mask wearing, maybe social distancing of whatever kind, but also the ongoing vaccine uptake for groups that haven't. Yet received it, or where booster doses are required, or indeed if another kind of primary dose is, is required with a, a really different variant of concern. So just to just to move to an embedded sustainable uh response that is obviously going to be a lower scale and a bit less hectic, but needs to be there, engaging those those communities through the longer term. And then have the recovery run in parallel because there are so many harms that have occurred through this, loss of educational opportunities, the, the mental health and, and psychological well-being issues of isolation, and the huge economic damage that's run through in terms of economic loss and all the corollaries of, of uh, increased poverty um, in, in families and communities and how that needs to be addressed. You know, that'll be a whole of Victorian government response, but I I would hope that public health plays a role in understanding where those issues are playing out and how the wellbeing and and health piece can help to support some of those challenges going forward.
0: What do you think of the public health workforce in Australia and Victoria? So you've got decentralised public health units, um, but you, one can't necessarily staff them overnight with the volume of the people with the right skills. Have you got a high demand um, uh, for those jobs and positions? Are you struggling to find them? What are your some views about how we embed that in the future in terms of an adequate pipeline of trained professionals?
1: It's a huge challenge we're We're deeply underdone from a public health medicine point of view. Says, says me, the public health physician talking to another public health physician. But, you know, there are, there are something like 300 full time equivalent public health physician positions in Australia that is underdone, deeply underdone. So, two lessons there. One, we need a, we need a fuller pipeline to be able to meet those requirements. And as I say, it's not just for this pandemic or for the next pandemic, it's for all the things that public health can do. But the other reflection is we, we have to, we have to be more open and imaginative and uh, accepting of the broader public health workforce and all of the skills that they bring. And I think we have been and we can be all too narrow in the public health medical view. There are, there are particular skills there for sure, and, and they're in high demand. And, you know, we're doing pretty well in Victoria at the moment in terms of how we've retained individuals and, and recruited but we need a broader life experience and skills experience to to come through in public health as well so social anthropological insights you know behavioral insights are not necessarily my key skill or other public health physicians key skill and there'll be lots of people who work having done an MPH or a health promotion course or just worked in behavioral sciences for a long time that would be so uh, incredibly helpful to a public health response in the planning preparation, response and recovery phases. So you know we need we need to go to those mph graduates to the epidemiologists and uh, lots and lots of other uh, skill sets in this space because there's so many facets to the response and recovery that uh, require more than that kind of purest public health medical skill set.
0: yeah i mean the the value and strength of public health, as you say is the diversity of perspective which needs to be reflected in the leadership. Um, Can we switch now to thinking about Australia in our region and Australia in the world? Um, Australia has delivered a lot of COVID assistance and social and economic recovery assistance to the Pacific and countries in Southeast Asia, as well as making multilateral um, contributions over the last now almost two years some of those visible contributions are the OSMAT teams, Australian Medical assistant teams that fly into countries in our region, PNG, Fiji, Timor-Leste have all had OSMAT team deployed. Now, you're sitting in a state of Victoria and you join these meetings where we talk about Australian contribution to the region. I'm just interested in your perspective about what else or what are the priorities or opportunities that you see for Australia to be providing or in partnership for. COVID response or health security in general in the region?
1: Yeah, look, we, we have done a lot and we continue to do a lot. I think there's a really, really big job ahead for us because there's a big job ahead for those Southeast Asian, Western Pacific countries. Some of them, you know, have a vaccine rollout schedule that stretches out for three or four years. Some of them have a primary income, which is seasonal workers or uh, tourism, both of which have been hit very heavily and so they need support to be able to get high vaccine coverage so that they can be part of the world economy, part of the international travel and tourism that will sustain them uh, as it has in the past. And so I think there's a particular need for support, both for vaccine provision at scale for some of those countries, and some of them don't have large populations. And so Australia does have domestic manufacturing capability, which personally I think they should continue with. I think it's being turned off for AstraZeneca vaccine, but it it could also be um, a really significant contributor to supply for Wipro and, and uh, Southeast Asia and to be able to deliver it. So all of the logistics and financial support and, and again, the Social and anthropological uh, elements that go to ensuring that uptake is as high as it can be. There's, you know, been provision of vaccine to Indonesia and PNG, but PNG is sitting at around one percent coverage. Deep vaccine scepticism, uh, including in the medical community, including across their own parliament. So there's a lot of work to be done in terms of um, a deeper understanding of what vaccines. Are needed for and, and uh, uh, to make sure that there's a real enthusiasm to take them up. I think the OSMAT responses have been great, and I've been an OSMATEA in the past, so I, I'm a believer in OSMAT. But but again, as a public health physician, I'd say they are overdone on clinical responses and underdone on public health responses. Um, so it's one thing to go in and help a busy ICU or uh, a ward full of COVID patients, but unless you're addressing the vaccination coverage, That's going to be a three- or four-year task for an OSMAT team, and OSMAT doesn't work that way. So make sure that you try and build some system strength and some embedded advice over the longer term as well, and that may not be OSMAT. That might be uh, sending an anthropologist, sending a uh, vaccine behaviourist to a country for a six- or 12-month position embedded in their ministry to say, this is what you need to do to make sure that your vaccine campaign works through the next few years, so, I'd love to see some more bilateral agreements that embed some genuine expertise uh, for the things that are most needed uh, for their recovery.
0: Yeah, I mean, the model of short term. Public health deployments is almost an oxymoron. Public health is built on relationship and uh, and a long-term commitment. And just to address one of your points, Australia is committed and will supply vaccines to achieve comprehensive coverage in the Pacific and Timor um, and from a balance of vaccines over the medium term as well. Um, Switching to sustaining yourself and your team. Just, I always finish with this because part of the Public Health Leaders Series is not just understanding from your perspective what's important, but to hear a bit more from you as a person about how you sustain yourself um, and your team in this sprint-turned-marathon.
1: Yeah, I think that's the particular challenge. Clearly, we uh, sprinted from the start and we've been sprinting ever since and to be 20 months in. and actually now to be facing some of the most substantial challenges ahead of us in the next few months is is rather dispiriting and pretty hard to pick yourself up to address. So it's a a rather tough juncture right now. But for me personally, it was last year through our second wave in Victoria, again, just super long days and nights work-wise and the urgency and volume makes it particularly challenging. So I think I sustain myself better now having learned the hard lessons of not doing it so well last year and recognising what those foundational elements of self-care are. And we can be a bit trite about them, but I I really like to emphasise them because if you, again, make them part of your daily schedule or weekly schedule and, and make a commitment to them, then you end up sustaining yourself a bit better. So sleeping properly, which means... Trying to get the phone away from you as you're going off to sleep, exactly, and, and putting it on silent and, and, and trying to set it aside for a period of time that you're not forever ruminating on work and the next email and the next meeting and the next decision that you have to make. Eating properly, so you know more home-cooked meals, better, proper, set-aside um, times to eat. Exercise, so trying to do that again, as a kind of embedded routine, if not every day, you know, every couple of days. And then uh, for me, meditation, but, you know, for anyone, time to not be thinking about work, again, hand your phone over, go go for a walk, have a bath, progressive muscle relaxation, whatever it is, but that kind of self-care element uh, in the day and embed it. So those were key elements for me. I also spoke to a psychologist great for venting great for reinforcing that kind of mental health hygiene stuff but also really useful kind of tactical lessons on how to manage the beast that is work you know there are people in the department who genuinely care about your welfare and are trying to support it but the machine that work is just churns the demands through continuously and so you you need you need to be really clear and really committed to um, putting boundaries up in that regard because it'll eat uh, away every last minute you've got with your family. And, you know, the real struggles that I had last year were not seeing my three kids for days on end and even when I was uh, putting them to bed, not being with them mentally, that, that really destroyed me in lots of ways. So I'm different in that regard now. And then for my team, I, I reinforced these things I hope I lead by example in terms of revealing some of that vulnerability and the struggles because the struggles that people have had through lockdown and covid are universal even if the work demands and responsibilities haven't been the same so there's a real common ground we have here to say gee we've all we've all done it tough in one way or another through the last couple of years let's recognize how tough it is for ourselves be a bit easier on ourselves in that regard take those lessons and embed them and then be there for other people, because the the best support that I've had has been my family and my dearest colleagues, and you know they're not people I've been able to hug as I've worked from home for months on end, but the love and kindness and offers of support that we can give each other are the real strength that we'll have in being able to manage in the longer term so sounds a bit sounds a bit Oprah Winfrey, but it's it really is what we end up saying that we need as individuals when, when we're struggling in whatever way that there is someone we can go to. And it might be to swear and scream, um, but it's also to get the support and empathy and compassion and care that can help us through.
0: Brett, thanks for sharing those perspectives from vaccine uptake right down to self-care with us. It's a terrific example of what has been talked about in many settings in this pandemic, about enlightened public sector leadership. I think we've just had a great example of that today.
1: Thank you, Steve.
0: You've been listening to Professor Brett Sutton, the Chief Health Officer of Victoria. I'm Stephanie Williams, Australia's Ambassador for Regional Health Security. And I spoke to Brett late last year for Contain This episode, just after Victoria began its COVID-19 vaccine roller. As at the 30th of January this year in 2022, Almost 80%, 79.86% to be precise, of Victoria's total population, including children, have had two vaccine doses, making it one of the most vaccinated places in the world. Thanks for listening. We invite you to tune in next fortnight for the next episode of Contain This.